Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Was there homework this week? What was the homework? What's that? The Honey Ball Sutta. We'll get to that next week. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) We have two more more, uh, meetings together before we break for a little while. So we'll sum up for two weeks, for three weeks. Um, We started off in September as we began studying some of the passages we've been exploring with the Aripariyasana Sutta, which is the Buddha's description of his awakening in the less formal version. So some of you might know there are two versions. One is where he describes the Four Noble Truths. But the other is where he just describes what it was like um, experiencing what he experienced. And, uh, of course, his experience was sitting under a tree and early one morning seeing the morning star and seeing the morning star having the experience of the end of clinging the end of wanting, the end of craving. And what was left when there was no wanting or craving was an absence of uh, the feeling of a solid and fixed self. And the presence of what he called nirvana, or in Pali, nibbana, which literally means to blow out or to extinguish. And of course we know, because he went on to teach 50 years afterwards, that the Buddha wasn't blown out. He still looked, had a face, belly, well, depending on what country. He's thinner in Thailand and Burma than he is in India. And um, maybe it's the food. All that paneer. Um... But what's extinguished or what's blown out, another translation of Nibbana is to unbind. And what's blown out is attachment to self, to thinking what's important or thinking what's unimportant is important. What's impermanent is permanent. What doesn't belong to you belongs to you. And we spent a lot of time looking at the first paragraph of that sutta. Does anybody remember it off by heart? He says, What I have seen is very hard to see, very subtle, even for the wise. People love, delight, and revel in their place. 
So in other words, what he's saying is, what I have seen is subtle and hard to see, even for the wise. Why? Because people love, delight, and revel in their place. And what he means by place, of course, is familiar a viewpoint. People love, delight, and revel in their viewpoint. Don't we all know that to be so true? And you can watch it um, (coughs) just operating in the sitting meditation practice. You're asked to watch the presence of the inhaling and exhaling pattern, and actually what you end up watching is just the stream of viewpoints Right? One viewpoint after another that appear as stories or as commentary. And the nice thing about the meditation practice, even if your technique is not so good, is that uh, held or accompanied by silence, all of those competing and conflicted and repetitive and chronic viewpoints slowly start to chill out. I like to think of it as the factor which in uh, meditative technique is called samatha, calming. Or in California, they call it chilling out. (laughs) And if you're cool in Toronto, you call it chilling out also. And then people think you've been hanging out in California. And then they get a viewpoint about you. And then that feels really good, because you actually (laughs) said chilling out, so that they would have a viewpoint and, uh, and then you realize that you can actually manipulate other people's perception of you like you did with your parents. I remember the first time I ever worked with a young person when I was training in psychotherapy. And um, the person would go to school. She was seven years old. And she would go to school and she'd pee in her pants. And then she'd make the teacher call her mother her parents had split up and call her mother and she knew the mother's voicemail would always turn on at work and then call the father. You have to come to school and pick up your, your kid because she's peed in her pants. And this is someone who never pees in her pants when she's at her mom's house or at her dad's house. And uh, so what would happen all the time was um, the daughter would, would end up being at school and both her mother and father would come. And they'd meet. They'd meet there. And it was fascinating to discover this strategy. Right? She found a way to get her parents together. If she just peed in her pants, made the right phone calls, she could have her family again. And... um, So she learned quickly that you can um, change other people's viewpoints so that your viewpoint is in a kind of feedback loop, right? Just like sentences are, right? I say a sentence, and when it comes out of my mouth, it's not finished. And some would, like linguists would say, well, it gets completed by the listener. But we also know that humans don't work like that. The sentence that I'm speaking comes from this English language that gets moved through the flow of my body and my mind and my experience, then you hear it flows through you. And then we know that you don't really learn it until then you take that and activate it by expressing it to other people. And this is the flow that we call yoga. Patanjali calls parinama. The fact that everything you watch is flowing. And uh, then the Buddha goes on to say, uh, people love, delight, and revel in their place. Um, And then he talks about waking up to this ground. What he woke up to was this. Was this ground. This ground. What's the ground? Then he goes on to say that this conditions that conditioned arising. This conditions that conditioned arising. So you know this in the meditation practice. As soon as I say, watch your breath, what do you do? What happens? 
Notice your breath. What happens? Yeah, you start manipulating it. You know. And so this is what's meant by conditioned arising. That every moment is conditioned by the way the moment is perceived. And we also talked about conditioned arising, I think, last week or two weeks ago, when we were talking about the six sense spheres. Did we? Dependent origination. Did we cover that? This is like that sutta we were looking at yeah. last week. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> I don't remember. How was the talk you went to tonight? Oh, it was really good. What did you talk about? <laughs> no idea. There was a good poem in there or something. Clock. Yeah, so conditioned arising that you're always conditioning what's happening and it can't allow for the possibility of your viewpoint to be interrupted because the conditioning is mostly happening from this side. I had this experience. I just came back from, I've been teaching for uh, four and a half days straight in Ottawa. I just came home. And um, after a couple days, I was really tired. I wasn't sleeping well, and the group was really large and very demanding. <laughs> and um, so I felt like I just needed a break. <laughs> so I went for a long walk. There's about three feet of snow in Ottawa. And I there was, an, and being Ottawa, everything was closed at, you know, 8 p.m. <laughs> and uh, so I was trying to find somewhere to eat, and the only place that was open was this place that was a bar. I don't really go to bars. I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the bar. So I went to the bar, and I decided I'd actually sit at the bar. So I sat at the bar, and I talked to a bartender. <laughs> really cool. I was living somebody else's life. And we got into this really long conversation about snow. And, uh, um, and then about parenting and various things. And it occurred to me at one point in the conversation how wonderful it felt um, to talk to somebody who has no reference point about you. They have no viewpoint. You don't know anything about them. It reminded me of a beautiful uh, passage from a Leonard Cohen interview that I heard recently where he talked about uh, his relationship with his teacher <coughs> who doesn't really speak English, uh, his Zen teacher. And he described it like this. He said it was so freeing for him to have a relationship with someone who has no ideas or expectations about him. And he didn't for his teacher. And so it allowed the possibility of another kind of knowing. And I think that's sort of what happens when we fall in love. right? When you fall in love sometimes, it's like you start tuning in to aspects of another person that maybe you'd never have noticed. You, know, you get obsessed with someone's, you know, neck or something. I don't know. Has anybody here ever had this experience? <laughs> you know, and you start writing poetry about their armpit. You know. <laughs> but you start seeing things in detail because the habits of your perception have been interrupted. Just like seeing really good art interrupts your habit. Um... There's a story of a, a Japanese story of a, um, a master who used poetry to um, teach with his students. And so he tells the students that he is going to write a poem, he's going to express it publicly, and then he wants his student to cap the verse. Okay, So he's going to spontaneously mention a poem, and then it's the student's job to add a sentence at the end. We've done this before. Some, has anybody here the, the intensives where we've done this before? We have to finish a poem. Have we done that, John? Jane Hirschfield. Yeah. Here's the poem. Why is the small deer standing right in the middle of the open sea? Why is the small deer 
standing right in the middle of the open sea. To which the following was added. I think the autumn mountains are clearly reflected there. So the first verse. Why is the small deer standing right in the middle of the open sea? Could you picture a deer just standing, probably backwards, in the middle of the open sea, and the student is right there and says, I think the autumn mountains are clearly reflected there. Has anybody ever been camping and you wake up in the morning and you look into the water and through the fog you just see the sky and inverted mountain? So this is what the Buddha was talking about, that, that the intimacy that he's experienced when the self is absent um, um, is not an achievement of the self. It's not like the way that in the Vedas and the Upanishads and in the Abrahamic religions we think of spirituality as a process of getting somewhere. The Buddha is describing it, no, it's actually a falling apart to recognize this ground of conditioned existence. Or you could say interconditioned existence. Um, Adam Phillips a wonderful uh, literary critic, and also he was a child psychoanalyst for many years. Here's how he describes transference. Do you know what transference is? Anybody? I know there's a few therapists in here. Uh, Transference is basically projection, but in a clinical relationship. So we invent this word to make us feel like experts. And instead of calling it projection, we call it transference. And if you don't like that, we call it (coughs) counter-transference. Here's what he says about transference, projection. So analyzing a transfer, transference, for example, the defining practice of psychoanalysis as a therapy, may not be a way of making people more realistic in their perceptions of others. The question, realistic from whose point of view, will never go away, but rather of curing them of their belief in their knowledge of themselves and other people. but rather of curing them of their belief in their knowledge of themselves and other people. Is that clear? So the projection is not just so that you can recognize that you've misperceived somebody. It's to actually cure you you of your conceit of or the conceit that happens when you're contracted around your viewpoint. I think that's a really interesting um, take on how therapy is healing. Because what's healing about any kind of relationship is that when something's unconscious for someone, one of the ways it comes out is projection. You don't see something, and so you turn someone else into a screen for your projection. And so um, it's interesting in the uh, course I've been teaching for clinicians this past year, how it seems like for some people, one of the benefits of learning meditation practice as a therapist is that when people project onto them, what we call the transference, they can then use the stillness of their mind and body to really see what's being projected. Right? We've all had this experience, right, where you sit with somebody who hasn't really mourned the loss of a lover, let's say, right? And uh, they start telling you about how they've been dumped. You know? And they're just smiling. Oh, it's over, but I'm moving on. You know? And you're sitting there crying. You know, because they're telling you the saddest story, and they they feel nothing. You know, but you're deep in the feeling, and in your feeling, it's like you're feeling the feeling that they're not feeling. So that's conditioned existence, conditioned arising. Does this make sense? 
And Adam Phillips is suggesting, suggesting, well, in you describing that to them, what you're doing is not just allowing them to swallow their projection or their unlived feeling, but you're curing them of a viewpoint they're caught in. And we all know this about close relationships, is that they really screw up our viewpoint. And that's hopefully what a good teacher is supposed to do, or, or you know, um, an enemy. And so the reason why we moved after studying that sutta to the Vada Sutta is to explore how so much of the way that we hold on to our viewpoint in the present is the is is affected by the way we think about our past, by the way we hang on to the past, and how that builds up a self that seems to continue to exist in time and space. And then you can't see the deer floating in the middle of the open sea. Or the poem we worked on last week, William Carlos Williams. How did that go? Um, So much depends on a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chicken. Or Basho's poem, an old pond frog jumps in, plop. An old pond frog jumps in, Nothing added. So I'll talk for a couple more minutes, and then because we're a smaller group tonight, maybe we can open it up to hear what you might have to say. Um, a beautiful poem by Basho. He, he wrote the frog. Frog poem. Maybe he just made it up. Maybe he didn't even see a frog. Um, this is a very early poem by Basho. Um, he's in a city called Sado, by, uh, which is on a river. And um, it's very similar, I think, this poem to the one with the deer in the water. Um, Stormy sea... Stretching out over Sado, Heaven's River. So this is not a quiet reflection. So stormy sea, can you picture this? Stormy sea, so there's no metaphor, don't read into it. Stormy sea, stretching out over Sado. Stormy sea stretching out, he looks into the stormy sea, and he sees Heaven's River. And you might know, some of you might know, Heaven's River is another term for the Milky Way. So, stormy sea stretching out over Sado. He looks in, he's not annoyed by the sea. He is not trying to be one with the sea. He's not doing anything special. And he looks at the sea, and he sees the Milky Way. He doesn't say the sea is like the Milky Way. He doesn't say... um, the old pond is like an old frog. <coughs> or he doesn't, or William Carlos Williams doesn't say that the, the rain barrel, or, the, rain, or the, the wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater is like my life. You, there's no self-reference. There's just noticing. Noticing, and this is what the Buddha is saying, noticing how things happen. Just clear noticing. And sometimes the way we learn how to notice something is by being able to uh, swallow our viewpoint, shift to another viewpoint. And what I was saying last week, um, and trying to use strong language to do this, is that the feeling of interconnection that or samadhi that we feel at the end of a yoga class when you when you lie down in corpse pose, and if you're at a hip yoga studio, they put some really nice ambient music on, and um, 
you put a flaxseed eye pillow on your eyes that smells like lavender, and then the teacher comes over and rubs your feet or something, and uh, and then you you hear a gong, and then you feel peaceful and interconnected with everything. And that's not really interconnection. That's not the samadhi that Patanjali is talking about. The kind of samadhi Patanjali is talking about is when you go right up to the edge of violence by being able to express to your lover something that you haven't been able to say. By turning to a kid who um, is frustrated and being still and listening. Oh, you've peed in your pants every day this week and your parents have had to come pick you up. And you don't analyze it. You don't uh, judge it. You just listen. You just listen. You go down to New Orleans after a flood and somebody's standing there I don't know if any of you remember the first pictures in the newspaper was a was an African American man holding his son who was dead. Does anybody remember this image? And um, when you meet that African American man holding his son who is dead, you don't ask him if he believes in God or if God did this or. Uh, you, you hand him a blanket. It's direct action. And that's interconnection. See, interconnection is action. It's not like this blissed out... We've been joking about that word a bit lately. But it's not this like blissed out endorphin feeling. You see? It's actually expressing and activating your practice in the difficult places. Because that's where your viewpoint needs to become flexible. And then you practice yoga in three spheres. Body, speech, and mind. Not just one of those spheres. Body, speech, and mind. Otherwise, your yoga practice just becomes another part of the current uh, obsession with... um, Passive nihilism. And in the world right now, we're seeing two kinds of nihilism. Wonderful thinker named Simon Critchley talks about this. Um, One is active nihilism, and the other is passive nihilism. And active nihilism is like Al-Qaeda, where uh, this world is not good enough the way it is. It doesn't have meaning. And there can be a better one. There can be a better world. This is what motivates the logic of um, suicide. You know, somebody who uh, is critiqued, uh, you know, a lot of these suicide bombers are critiqued in terms of their faith, but they actually have really good faith. Their faith is perfect. You can't critique their faith. They have a lot of faith. But the faith is that this action is going to guarantee them something better in the future. And when they fly into a building, uh, their families get all kinds of gifts and so on to celebrate the faith. So that's active nihilism. And passive nihilism is the yoga and Buddhist communities in Europe and North America, where we try and get into this island of peace and go to all these workshops to just feel really good inside of ourselves. And uh, what that has to do with interconnectedness, I don't know. See, It's just another example of passive nihilistic contemplative ideology. It's not helpful right now. The, the fish really need you. And the rivers really need you. And your community really needs you. And so you're doing this practice for them. You're doing this practice for all those fish stuck in farms. And then the practice starts to flow. 
Does this make sense? Yeah. I hope I'm not offending anybody who's into flaxseed things. <laughs> so everything depends on being able to see. So much depends, William Carlson. So much depends on just seeing, seeing the red wheelbarrow, seeing this floor the way it is, the fan the way it is, without so much preference. But then the quality of your seeing takes a turn that motivates you into action. And that action is the expression of intimacy, the expression of yoga. And it cures you of the self-centered viewpoint that is the heart of this practice. Because if you boil this practice down to one thing, it's that nothing belongs to you. Nothing. Even you don't belong to you. Because there's no you originally that anything could belong to you. If that makes any logical sense. Okay. So, any comments, questions, anger, confusion? Jealousy, envy, greed, inconsistency, sloth, torpor, laziness. <laughs> what else is on Patanjali's list? <coughs> Sickness, apathy, and doubt. Is there any apathy arising? We're in a we're living in an apathetic culture right now. Is apathy arising? I just want to do my backbends and feel good and drink fresh juice. <laughs> and actually, there are some places where if you join a yoga club, you can get a discount on your juice. <laughs> kind of interesting. Empire. Not even organic juice. Like $10 non-organic juice. It's $10 with the discount for doing your backbending. Build the roof tile empire. <laughs> and then you can be vegetarian, so you're pure and your yamas are taken care of. <laughs> Modern yoga. Okay. It's being recorded. <laughs> this one won't go on the website. So, any comments or questions, <coughs> concerns? You had a question about uh, the Honeyball Sutta. Yeah. We'll get to that. Okay. Anything else keeping you up at night between Tuesdays? Where are we going to study Heart Sutra? Yeah, we're going to study the Heart. Yeah, this is today's the transition. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so next week we're going to start the Heart Sutra. So get ready. Hmm. Yeah. I've just been thinking a lot of no hindrance, therefore no fear. Yeah, no fear. <coughs> yeah. It's interesting because when you when you uh, experience fear, um, when you really look into fear, there's a direct there's an opportunity to directly see the particular view that you're hanging on to. When you really look at fear, yeah. um, but it's hard to look at fear because we just want to act on it. Anybody else? What's happening in your practice? Yeah. Just been reading a bit of Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. And found it kind of interesting the way he was talking. He was saying we practice in order to take care of ourselves, in order to take care of everything else. Uh huh. And we have to sort of start by looking inwards. As he was yeah. talking about being. You basically become everything. Yes. So when there is anger, you are. You become anger. And yes. When there is a smile, you become a smile. Yes. Which, which I think is sort of feels to me like the, the opposite side of the same coin that you're talking about. Oh. Um, first, I was thinking, oh, I'm 
upholstery image of the self, but it's actually it not yeah. doesn't I think. Yeah, it yeah. Just assumes it into everything. Yeah. Fish and yeah. trees and yeah. Um, and yeah, that's nice. But there is this idea that in order to take care of the fish and the birds and the trees. You can speak in dualistic language or non-dualistic language, and you're always going to fall on either side. That's why in Zen it says, whenever you speak, you get mud on your face. Albert Schweitzer um, has a nice little passage that I came across today. I had to write it down in case it was handy, which is what you're talking about, I think. Um, this is how he defines nonviolence. A life lived in the midst of other lives that want to live. A life lived in the midst of other lives that want to live. And then he says, then all life becomes part of my life. So a life lived in the midst of other lives that want to live. Then all life becomes part of my life. That's the expression of intimacy. But also intrapsychically, internally. So when anger arises, for example, um, anger is also a life that wants to live. And you see this in spiritual communities where there's a lot of repression of strong emotions, sexual energy or anger or whatever it is. And then you see like passive aggressiveness, right? On the outside, everyone's so peaceful and wearing white. And, you know, next thing you know, you know, Nobody's getting along. The population's transient and so on. Um, because to see that anger also wants to have a life. And it can have a life if it's taken care of. And so when anger rises, you take care of your anger. And then in taking care of your anger, you're taking care of the community. Because you're not e expressing your anger in unskillful ways. But it also doesn't mean you repress the anger and say it's not spiritual, doesn't fit with my yogi persona, and uh, I can't be angry. Yeah. Actually, the night after I went to the bar, one of the students said, we were working on the yamas the next day, and they're like, oh, I saw you in the bar last night. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they, they just had to do that. So you take care of the anger. And how do you take care of the anger? With mindfulness. Ram Das asked Thich Nhat Hanh, how do you take care of anger with mindfulness? And Thich Nhat Hanh said, you um, hold the anger like you hold a flower in the sun. And when the sun comes <coughs> down, it doesn't just beat on the outside of the flower and warm it up. The sun goes through the petals right to the inside. And so that's how you take care of your anger. So when you become angry, you don't express yourself. You do walking meditation and sun salutations mm -hmm. until the anger can settle and some feeling can arise. Because when you're angry, there's only one viewpoint, and it's yours, and you're right, and they're wrong. So by taking care of the feeling of anger, which is the practice, um, we take care of the other. You see, we're practicing for the other. Because the other person is you. And they're a life that wants to live. And you're a life that wants to live. And the anger is a life that wants to live. And you all have to live. So the thing would apply if the anger is being projected onto you. Yeah. If the anger is projected onto you, or if there's someone you know who's angry who doesn't want to acknowledge the anger that's being projected onto you, or whatever is projected onto you, guilt, or mm -hmm. 
It's like someone feels guilty and you say, oh, she's making me guilty. But actually, she might be doing that forever. So are you going to feel guilty forever? No, you have to take care of the guilt. You're guilty. You see? You feel guilty. You feel angry. You feel jealousy. Whatever. You have to take care of that. And that's why we need a practice. Any other questions, comments? Spit on the sluggish molasses side tonight. <laughs> Too much shopping? <laughs> yeah. In terms of what you were talking about, the conditioned existence earlier, yeah. you think of so what the bleep do we know? Uh-huh. Where they talk about, they've done I think MRI studies on uh-huh. people with like sound of barking dogs or something. Uh-huh. And they can see what parts of the brain lit up when uh-huh. they hear the sounds. And it wasn't the sound, wasn't the parts of brain, the brain they associated with auditory, uh, with recognition of sounds, it was memory. Yeah. So it was like, you were hearing the sound, but we weren't hearing the sound. We were just memory. Yes. Just treating memory. Yeah. yeah. And then you can't see the deer in the sea. Because you're looking at the sea and you're just filled up with all kinds of things about how wonderful it is and how you're going to move here because the sea's so beautiful and you want to go swimming and let's go swimming. And then you miss this deer just walking around in the middle of the sea. And in terms of perception, I wonder if yeah. you talk a little bit more about that. When we're looking at the honey ball, we're talking about this. Oh, thing. no. Well, that will clarify everything. Everything more complicated. I think I'll save the honey ball sutta because I want to bring it in when we start studying the heart sutra together. <laughs> but even just talking a little bit about perception. Okay. The five aggregates. Because I thought I kind of had a... Okay, remember, there's no such thing as the five aggregates. It's the five aggregates affected by clinging. Okay, so it so you can talk about perception, and you can talk about perception affected by clinging. So we're talking about perception affected by clinging, okay. which means um, perception is not bare; it's conditioned. So it's when you perceive something and you've already named it and created some form. So you say, "Oh, there's the light." That's perception. But there were a few steps that happened before like contact, right? Um, So how that light is in relationship to me is perception affected by clinging. I want the light to be dimmer. I want it to be stronger. That's desire. But I start really leaning away from the light, and then there's clinging. Is that clear? So contact would be... um me seeing it, perception would be me. Contact is the eye and the form coming together. You get eye consciousness. That's contact. And the perception is And then there's feeling. And the feeling is positive, negative, or neutral. Can I have the feeling without the perception? Can you have the feeling? See, the eye doesn't show up yet. Because when there's perception, because of memory, then the eye shows up as um, consciousness. Eye consciousness. I mean, me consciousness, which is the mind. That's at the very end, right? That's at the very end. But I thought also consciousness and object meeting was contact. That's a different sutta. <laughs> so the question is, okay, so if there's no perception, there's no I yet. Uh, correct. Because yeah. what I'm wondering is if if there could be some sort of contact and some sort of feeling without me knowing, without me being able to say, this is what's causing. Yeah, of course, all the time, most of what goes on. All those acids in your stomach right now? So then, even in this linear progression, we don't necessarily go through all of the, the steps. If we have yeah, you go through all the steps. Feeling, all the steps. 
If there was, what was that perception? 64 times in one second. We go all the way through the chain. Uh huh. No, you don't go through the chain. The chain's just going. The chain's going. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, sometimes we've done experiments uh, where uh, you uh, feel some strong sensation in the body. We've done this before, right? So feel strong sensation in the body, you know, especially negative ones that we usually have aversion to. And you can feel that feeling and refer it back to a self or not. It's an amazing thing. So you can say, there's pain in the knee, or you can say, that's pain in my knee, I don't like it, right? Um, uh, Carly, when she was here a few months ago, was talking about having cancer and um, how much changed for her when she just started calling it cancer and not calling it my cancer. And that cancer wasn't happening to me. It was just cancer happening. And what a huge shift that was for her in her experience. There's just pain happening. It's not happening to me. It's just happening. And how you superimpose that me, that's the aggregate affected by clinging. We're going to spend much more time on this, like the rest of your practice life. (laughs) This might not last for too long. I've had enough of this. I just want myself back. Is that also a technique that you would use if if one had, or I'll speak for myself, if I had a a memory that was plaguing me or a certain memory Uh come up and um, give strong sensation? You were saying a technique about how to deal with anger, and I find those techniques really helpful, but really ingrained memories or... Yeah, also just allowing them to show up. They want to have a life of their own too. And allowing them to show up and making some space for them to be around. But being careful not to add to it even the time-space categories of like, oh, that's something that happened to me in the past. This is what we've been working on the past month here. Is that particular movement (coughs) of... um, going back into the past and using that experience to reify a self now. And how much of our self now has to do with the way we cling to the past through the five aggregates. And I'll just say one more thing about that, and I've said this every week for the past month, which is like, it's so subtle that even when the Buddha teaches the sutta, the next three suttas after start off with, hey, do you remember what the Buddha talked about? Nope. Not even a stanza. <laughs> and this is what happens when you, when you start looking at how clinging works in the five aggregates. It's like, you get it for a second? It's like Mulabhata. <laughs> you get it for a second? And you're like, oh, I know what it is. It's so cool. Whoa, that is, do you feel that? I'm going to do a workshop and teach that. And then two seconds later, it's like, oh, what's he talking about? <laughs> That's like the first decade of Pulupata. It's like that. Oh, there it is. That's what it is. I know exactly. Whoa, I don't feel anything. (laughs) Just constipated. Squeezing my anus. Okay. Oh, yeah. I don't know if this helps, but if you go on Wikipedia and look up Oh. They actually show diagrams on how these five right. things uh-huh. happen. Yeah. So that might help. I don't know if it's accurate, but it can help sure. visualize. Yeah, you have to be careful with that Wikipedia. That's right. That's right. Great. That's why you're all asking questions about <laughs> to do a study. Like, it's all okay until I went to Wikipedia. The Mulabanda was fine, and then I actually read something about it. And uh, I was feeling something until David Swenson told me to. <laughs>
So can we call it a night? Yeah. So thank you for letting me uh, just uh, monologue tonight. And uh, we'll become next formal again next week. And so for the next two weeks, we'll start studying the Heart Sutra together. And I'll hand out a translation of it. And um, if you're looking for a text to read to accompany our uh, study, then you can buy um, or take out a library. I don't know if they would have it. Uh, Red Pines Translation of the Heart Sutra, published by Copper Canyon Press. Did you get it yet? It's really good. And yes, his name is Red Pine. (laughs) It's not his real name. Can we webcam over the holidays? (laughs) Uh, I will be incommunicado for six weeks. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. Namaste. Namaste.